You can go ahead and take a seat. Uh, good morning. My name is Rob Collis, and I'm on our pastoral team. It's a joy to be here with you today. Uh, if you walked into this room thinking you were coming to a minerals and mining conference, uh, welcome. Uh, that's, I think, this afternoon or across the hall. Uh, but it is a joy to have you here. This is not your plenary talk. Uh, this is a sermon. Uh, but if you're not here for that and you're just here for church, you're in the right place. Um, over the last number of weeks, we've been delving into the, the season of Epiphany together. Uh, epiphany is the season in the church calendar which invites us to, to sit and to grapple with the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, as Grady shared with us a few weeks ago in his sermon, which you're welcome to go back and listen to online, uh, through Jesus' ministry, we are seeing him gradually revealed as the Son of God. And we are being invited to, to experience for ourselves two fundamental truths about who Jesus is. First, Jesus is fully God. That's what Christians have always believed throughout history. But through Epiphany, we get to experience this and, and, and have this, this moment of Epiphany for ourselves. Jesus was fully human, but he did things that only God can do. And that's because he is God. God in the flesh. He is God with us. And he's not only fully God here with us, but second, Jesus is more than just the God of one ancient people living in the Middle East. He is the God of everything. Jesus is the God of everything. He's the God of the whole world and of all the nations. And as Grady explained to us the other week, these are the two aha moments and realizations of Epiphany. And with these realizations, something else. You see, not only is Jesus fully God and, and the God of, of all of the world, but Jesus is also the God who is calling us to follow him. He's calling me and he's calling you to come and follow him. And that's what I want to look at today. Uh, this morning I want to focus our attention on our reading from the Gospel of Mark. I'm not going to address the, the First Corinthians reading, as fascinating as it is, and as I'm sure all of you want to learn about circumcision today. I'm not doing that. Uh, that might be a, a relief for many of you too. Um, but we're going to look, focus our attention to, on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and this is where we, we learn about the start of Jesus' ministry on earth. That moment where he called his first disciples to come and follow him. You see, Jesus had this encounter with, with Simon and with Andrew and with James and John. And something happened. That morning was, was like any other for these guys. They, they got up, went off to work to go fishing. But by day's end, they were on the road following Jesus wherever he led them. And there are three parts of this encounter that I want to explore together today. Jesus calls to them. He calls them to follow him. And in following him, he says that they will become something. We're calling, following, and becoming. So let's explore each of these in turn. We'll begin with this first one, the calling. Uh, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Uh, if you don't have your own Bible, we've got copies in the back, which you're welcome to take with you if you don't have one at home, and you can turn it on on your phone too and be illumined by the glow of the Word of God upon your face, or you can just ignore all of that and just look at the screen behind me too. Uh, so Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men 
and followed him. So Jesus, he's walking beside the Sea of, of Galilee. That's where this, this account takes place. And for those of you who don't know, uh, the Sea of Galilee is really just a, a very big lake. Uh, we call it a sea. It, it's just it's a lake. Uh, as he was walking, he sees some, some fishermen. He sees Simon and Andrew on their boats casting their nets. And then he sees James and John on their boat as well, mending their nets or preparing their nets to go fishing. And, and I don't know about, about you and what images come to your mind when you think about fishermen, especially fishermen in the Bible. But for me, when I think about the, these fishermen in the Bible who lived 2,000 years ago, I, I think I sometimes have this caricature of what they're like. Uh, for whatever reason, I, I get this impression that they were simple, hardworking people, which is true, but also that they were kind of illiterate and of a lower class and station in life. I've realized, though, that that's a bit of a misconception. In the ancient Greco-Roman world, fishing was actually really good business. Uh, 2,000 years ago, if you were looking to make a good return on your investment, fishing was a pretty good place to put your money because everyone wanted fish. It was one of the staples of everyone's diets in that age and day. And, and, and the Sea of Galilee was actually one of the best places to go fishing. It was uh, known throughout the area, throughout the world, as one of the best places to go. Uh, all over the Greco-Roman world, people would buy cured fish from Galilee. And that sale would actually prop up the towns and villages all around this lake. Now, some fishermen in the Bible are hired hands, and actually some of them are mentioned in this, this account. But Simon and Andrew and James and John seem to have been small business owners, that they owned their boats, they owned their equipment, and they seem to even have had people working with them and under them. By all accounts, they seem to be decently successful businessmen in a rewarding industry. So, so Jesus, he's walking along, and he sees these, these small business owners, and he calls to them with a proposal. It's not really a business offer, but he calls to them, and he says, come follow me. Come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Now, a lot of commentators have, have said that Jesus is positioning himself as a Jewish rabbi in his day, with his as a teacher with his students. And, and this imagery of following him hearkens to this idea of students following their rabbi. And when Jesus' disciples followed him, it would have appeared to everyone looking from the outside, it would have looked a lot like Jesus was leading a, a small rabbinical school, just like many others in his day. But there's something that Jesus is doing that's unlike anyone else of his day. First of all, Jewish rabbis, they never chose their students. Their students would always come to them and, and choose to study under them. But that's not what Jesus does. That's not what Jesus does. Instead, he goes out and finds his disciples. He sought out his disciples and says, hey, come follow me. Second, Jewish rabbis were chosen by their students in order to study the Jewish law, to study Torah. And, and their end goal was to learn from their rabbi in order to then become a rabbi themselves and to go out and teach other people about the Jewish law. But Jesus said that the end goal for his disciples was to go out and fish for people. He has a different purpose in mind for his followers. And that's something that I'll come back to uh, towards the end of my sermon. Third, the authority of a Jewish rabbi was in proportion to their understanding of Torah. I'll just say that one more time. Their authority was in proportion to their understanding of the Jewish law. 
They didn't have any authority in and of themselves. Their authority for their students was ultimately in Torah and in their comprehension of the Jewish law. And they were followed because of what their teacher actually knew. But Jesus doesn't ask people to follow him to learn about Jewish law. He doesn't appeal to Torah as his authority. He always calls people to himself, to come and follow Jesus for his own sake. And his authority doesn't come from, from his learning and, and his expertise and, and wisdom. Instead, it comes from himself. You see, Jesus never behaved like any other religious teacher of his day. And that's because he's not like any of them. Jesus is utterly unique throughout history when it comes to religious leaders. He's not just another religious leader in history. He's not just another moral teacher. His purposes have always been different from the very beginning. And how he behaves is unlike anyone else, too. And we see that not only in how he challenged ancient Jewish practice in, in calling his own disciples, but also in how he uses his authority when he calls people to himself. In verse 17, Jesus says to Simon and to Andrew, come follow me. And uh, I'm going to note out for just a minute, so please bear with me. Put on your thinking caps or buckle up. Uh, because in the Greek, this is kind of interesting here. Um, so in the Greek, the word he uses for come is, is duete. Can you say that? Duete. It's music to my ears. Uh, and what intrigues me here is, is this. The word duete is not a verb. The word duete is not a verb. There, there is a verb in, in the Greek for to come, and it's the word erkomai. But that's not what Jesus says here. He says, duete, duete, come. And, and this is, a, again, noting out, so bear with me, but, but this is a participle. Now, if it's been a long time since you've studied grammar, or just grammar was never really your thing, and you're like, I never want to touch grammar again, I, I understand, that's okay. But essentially, particles are these, these functional words that don't carry much meaning on their own, but their meaning comes from the context of the other words around them. And they, they come to have meaning because of the phrase that they're in. And so, like, okay, Rob, so, so what, what does that mean for us? Well, what this means is that Jesus isn't commanding them to follow him. Jesus isn't commanding them or ordering them to follow him. Jesus doesn't use his power and authority to order us around or to command us to follow. Instead, he exhorts us. He, he encourages us to follow him. And do you feel the difference there? Because for me, that's huge. He doesn't order us like soldiers to go off and do something. He invites us in. And actually, he uses the same word duete when he says in, in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it's the same word he uses at the end of John's gospel when he says, come and have breakfast. Do you today? Come. It's, it's an encouraging, inviting exhortation to us. Jesus, he's, he's the Lord of the universe. He made all things and he sustains all things by his being. And if he so chose, he could order us to follow him, couldn't he? But that's not how he uses his power and authority. He doesn't order us to come. Instead, he uses that power and that authority 
to invite us to follow. He encourages us to come, saying, hey, come with me. Come have breakfast with me. Come to me. Jesus calls us to himself. And he calls us with an invitation. The, the invitation and exhortation to simply come. The first thing we see in Jesus' encounter with these disciples is that he calls them. He's calling them to himself. And he's calling them to follow him. And this brings us to our second point today, following. Jesus says in verse 17, come, follow me. More literally, we could say, come after me. Uh, it calls to mind the image of walking single file down a path. Like when you're, you're following someone on a hike down a, a narrow trail, and you just have to kind of walk single file. We're walking in Jesus' footsteps as he leads us along a path. Uh, this past week, I, I was taken a little aback by how much snow we got. Um, and over the last number of years of experiencing snow in Vancouver, I've learned a few things. One is it's often actually not the most enjoyable thing to, to venture out into the snow. But, but two other things I've, I've noticed that seems to happen when it snows in Vancouver. Um, well, one thing I've experienced a number of times now is it's almost like Vancouverites become friendly to strangers. Um, and I, I, it's almost like snow just unlocks this hidden Canadian friendliness gene towards others. Has anyone else ever experienced that? Was that just me? A few other hands? Yep. But if, if Vancouverites get friendlier when it snows, they also forget how to drive a car. <laughs> yeah, that, that resonates too. Um, on Wednesday, I was on Oak Street, and they, they did an all right job plowing the roads, like one lane and going either in either direction. Uh, but I watched as this car came up. It was a small little hatchback. And for whatever reason, the driver just decided that he didn't want to drive in the plowed lane. He decided that he wanted to, to drive through the snow. And there was a good amount of snow on the road. He's just driving this little hatchback. And there was a path that had been cleared for him to drive through by a snow plow. And the snow plow had made this way for him to drive. And the driver's like, nah, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I want to make my own way. And I think he made it 20 feet. 20 feet, and then just stalled, got stuck, and I don't even know what happened at the end of the day. We follow so many people in all areas of our life. We follow people. We're the experts and thinkers that we follow and look to for wisdom and thought. Or stories we follow as we vicariously join in adventures of our favorite characters in shows and movies and books, or or following mentors and people who are just a little bit further along in this thing called life, who we turn to for advice. But even in those moments in life when we're trying to forge our own paths, the reality is, is that we're still following after something. Even that guy who got stuck on the street and going through the snow, he was still trying to drive along the road. And maybe we're following after a vision of what success and a good life could look like, or following after some other goal or aim. The reality is, we're all following after something. I wonder, what are you following after today? Who are you following today? Jesus says to us, come after me. Come, follow me. Let me lead you. Let me guide you, because I'm going on a journey, and I want to take you with me.
And Jesus doesn't always tell us where he's leading us. When he says, follow me, he doesn't really tell us what kind of roads and, and twists and turns and terrain he's going to take us through. But he goes with us. And he doesn't just go with us, he goes before us on this path. He prepares our path and he establishes our steps. Earlier this week, uh, my wife, Taya, reminded me of the story of Exodus and how God led Moses and the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt into the Promised Land. And the way that God led them was to go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and as a pillar of fire by night. So that morning and evening, they could still see him going before them and they could follow him at any time of the day. And God never told them exactly where this path would lead them. But he always went before them. They could see him and they could follow the path that he was preparing for them. And they always had this, this visceral reminder when they looked at this, this pillar of cloud or this pillar of fire. It was this visceral reminder that they were being guided and led by the powerful presence of God. The, the 19th century theologian, uh, John Henry Newman, he, he wrote a poem about following after Jesus. It's actually now a hymn as well. Uh, it's called The Pillar of the Cloud. He says, Lead kindly light amidst encircling gloom. Lead thou me on. The night is dark and I am far from home. Lead thou me on. Keep thou my feet. I do not ask to see the distant scene. One step enough for me. I was not ever thus, nor prayed that thou shouldst lead me on. I love to choose and see my path, but now lead thou me on. I loved the garish day, and spite of fears, pride ruled my will. Remember not past years. So long thy power hast blessed me, sure it still will lead me on. O'er moor and fen, o'er crag and torrent, till the night is gone. And with the morn those angel faces smile, which I have loved long since and lost a while. And Jesus might not lead us with, with a pillar of cloud or by fire, but when we follow him and come after him, we are walking along a path that he has started walking ahead of us. And he goes before us with his powerful presence. And he kindly leads us on. As, Hen as John Henry Newman says, lead me on, kindly lead me on. Even when we falter and stumble, Jesus will lead us. And he will gently and warmly call us to come and follow after him. To come and follow in his ways. To seek after him and to find him as we seek him with all of our hearts. The second thing we see in this encounter Jesus has is that he's calling them to follow him and to follow after him as he leads us. And in following him, Jesus makes a promise. And this brings us to our third point today, becoming. Look again with me at Mark chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 17. Jesus says, Come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Now, earlier I explained that Jesus was different from the other religious leaders of his day, and that Jewish rabbis were chosen by their students in order to come and study the Jewish law. And their own goal when they came to these, these rabbis, these, these teachers, 
was to learn from them in order to go off and become a rabbi, to go off and teach other people the same thing. But Jesus said that the end goal for his disciples was to go out and to fish for people. Now, just, just a quick question. Are there any people who, who fish for a living in this room? Just a show of hands. I, I didn't think so. Um, does anyone just go fishing for a hobby? No. Wow. Has anyone ever gone fishing in this room? Okay. <laughs> so we've gone fishing, but it's not a hobby. We're like, no, this is, this is not for me. Um, that's good. I, I went fishing with my father-in-law this summer, who, who is a fisher. He, he loves fishing. Uh, and last year was a great year for salmon, and so he took me and Tara out. Didn't catch anything, um, which I feel like is typical for fishing, which is why it's not my hobby. Probably the case for many of you, too. Jesus makes this promise to the, these fishermen that they are going to be fishers of people. And I find that kind of difficult to relate to. Is, is this a difficult thing for you to relate to? Especially when so many of us have gone fishing once in our lives and we're just like, no, never again. It's not my hobby. I, I, I sort of imagine someone casting a line from a second-story building trying to like hook someone off the street, right? Just like, or, or like throwing a net on someone on, on Robson Street, which is not only just really weird behavior, and, and behavior that's just not going to endear you to, to anyone who you actually managed to throw a net on or a hook in the cheek, but if you were to go out and especially like throw a net on someone, like up on, up on the ice rink upstairs and just like haul them away, not only is that like really stupid to do, it's called abduction. Like, that cannot be what Jesus means here. Jesus can't mean that, that these fishermen are meant to start hunting for people to strong-arm them into religious belief. He can't mean that because that's not in keeping with how Jesus calls people to himself, is it? If you remember, Jesus didn't order or command the disciples to follow him. He called them, and he's exhorting them, and he's inviting them to come and follow him. It's not ordering, it's not strong-arming, it's inviting and wooing. It doesn't throw a net over our heads or, or hook us in the cheek. He invites us to come. Now, I think this passage is very clear that, that Jesus is intending for his disciples to go and tell others about him. Similar to how students of rabbis would one day end up teaching their own students one day, I think there's a continuity here in, in this, this expectation that they'll go and tell. But Jesus' disciples aren't meant to go off and, and teach about Jewish law. Their end goal is to help people to know about Jesus. So does that mean that they're catching people? I still don't really like that. And if they are catching people, it, it's only as far as Jesus would call those people in the same manner that he called the disciples, right? Not by force, but by calling and wooing and bidding. When Jesus says, I will send you out to fish for people, I think it actually might be helpful for us to just take a step back for a moment, just to, to stop and just ask the question, why do people go fishing for a living? What do fishermen do? I mean, they, they catch fish, but why? It's to feed people, right? At the end of the day, when people who go fish for a living they're in the business of feeding people. But what does Jesus say to his disciples? He says, come follow me and I will send you out to 
fish for people. Jesus is saying, if you follow me, I will send you out to feed other people's souls. I'll send you out to feed others, to help their souls become rich and fat from feasting on the presence of God, from abiding in Jesus and soaking in his presence. And at the end of the day, that's actually what these disciples did. In Acts, we we learn that the earliest church didn't gather around and and devote themselves to the apostles' nets and and to the fish that they brought with them. No, they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread. As they learned about Jesus Christ, who he was and is and what he had done, and as they fed their souls with the spiritual food of his living word and communion, Jesus sent them out so that they could feed others so that others could experience the goodness of God here and now, here with us. And I I really appreciate how this translation in the NIV, uh, it it captures this this impulse and this thrust to to go out and to be sent out to go and tell. And I I think they they draw that out really well here. But there's something else that Jesus says in the Greek, again, nerd hat, Greek moment, that just gets missed a little bit here. And some other translations maybe pick up on this bit a little bit better, but in the Greek, Jesus says more directly, this is kind of Rob's like rough translation behind me now, come follow after me and I will make you become fishes for people. Come follow after me and I will make you become fishes for people. See, Jesus, he sends us out, but he does it by making us become by making us become. Jesus, he doesn't send us out to go figure it out all in our own strength, but figure it out all on our own. Jesus is the one who's doing this work in us. He is the one who makes this happen. We don't transform ourselves. He transforms us. And no other religion or philosophy says this. Every other teacher or religious leader says, this is what you must do to change and to be saved. But Jesus says, If you will come and follow me, I will change you. If you will come and follow me, I will change you and I will save you by my power and my strength working within you, not your own. Jesus is the one who does it. Friends, this is grace. This is what grace looks like. Grace is getting what we do not deserve. Jesus, he's bringing the presence of God to us. He's bringing the kingdom of God up there, near to us, and within reach. In fact, in Mark, just before this, in Mark one fifteen, he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Friends, when, when we believe in Jesus, and when we hear him calling us and, and turn to him, not only does God's grace span the distance between us and heaven and wash us clean from sin, But God's grace is lavished upon us. Lavish and it flows over us and showers us with his grace, his presence. As it comes to come and dwell in our hearts and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us. As the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in us, that begins transforming us into the image of God. Slowly, slowly transforming us from one degree of glory to another as we become like Jesus. Simon and Andrew and and James and John, they heard Jesus call to them, the call to come and and to follow him. He never said where they would lead them. 
He never told them that it would be easy. But he promised that he would do it. That he would do it. That he would lead them and that he would guide them. That he would transform them so that they would become something new in him. So that they would become like him. So that they would go and feed others with the presence of Jesus Christ. That morning when they woke up, they, they went to work just like any other. But by day's end, they were on the road following after Jesus. And just as Jesus called them to come and follow after him, and just as he promised to transform them by his power, and by his presence with them and in them, so too is he calling you and me today. It's the same call to come and to follow, with the same promise that he will make us become like him. See, Jesus is calling to you. He sees you. and He knows you. He's calling to you to follow after him and to walk in his ways, to walk in the path that he is leading you along. And he's promising to make you become a new creation in him, fulfilled and whole in him and with his world, so that your soul would be rich and satisfied as you become like him, and so that you too could feed others with his presence. So today, if you hear his call, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart to him. Instead, would you give him your ear? Would you listen and hear what it is that he has to say? May he grant you the grace to follow. Will you pray with me?